Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. British comedian Stephen Fry once wrote, If you know someone who's depressed, please resolve never to ask them why. Depression isn't a straightforward response to a bad situation. Depression just is like the weather. Try to understand the blackness, lethargy, hopelessness, and loneliness they're going through. Be there for them when they come through the other side. It's hard to be a friend to someone who's depressed, but it's one of the kindest, noblest, and best things you will ever do. On today's show, we'll demystify depression, share some surprising symptoms, and unexpected treatments. My first guest today is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. She is the author of Perfectly Hidden Depression, which will be released in the fall of 2019. Dr. Rutherford was born in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and began her career after graduating from Rhodes College in Memphis with a degree in French. After living abroad, she worked as a jingle singer, also performing jazz at night. Her career path transitioned upon earning a music therapy degree from SMU, leading her to a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from the University of Texas, and the rest is history. She's been practicing ever since. Welcome, Dr. Rutherford. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you. I was busy back then. <laughs> you were busy. You're still busy in a different yeah, kind of way. I, I've laughed because from going from a jingle singer or a nightclub singer to a clinical psychologist, it took, only took me eight or nine years, but it d- definitely proves that you can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> Indeed. Let's talk about that dark side, you know, and I make it known to people who listen to the show and clients I work with that I'm a reformed depressed person. And so I'm always interested in visiting that dark side and destigmatizing what goes on under the human hood upstairs with our minds. Well, good for you. It's a worthy effort. It's one of the reasons why 
I started blogging in the first place was because I have run into this, and especially in the South, we're just still behind other parts of the country as far as being more open about our vulnerabilities. And so when I began blogging, I certainly started talking about my own issues, a history of anorexia, anxiety disorder, and then I've had some personal chaos as well. <laughs> I talk pretty <laughs> I, openly about. <clears throat> I like how you say that, personal chaos. Yeah. It's very dignified, actually. Well, thank you very much. I am a doctor. Yes. <laughs> you don't just play one on a podcast. You That's you are right. a real one. <laughs> Let's talk about perfectionism, because I think that that is a, a skeleton that lives in many of our closets and under our beds and perhaps as our bedmates. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I certainly uh, grew up being parented by a perfectionistic mother. And so I was surrounded by these, these kinds of signals, be they verbal or nonverbal, about what was expected of me. And she expected it of herself. It was just what she believed to be correct. And I have, as a therapist now for over 25 years, I have watched people walk in and sit on my sofa. And they begin to, when I ask some questions, they begin to tell me about things that have happened in their life. And Lisa, what I began noticing was that some of them did it with this huge smile on their face. They were totally detached from any kind of pain or emotion. And they, they would discount whatever had happened to them, be it a rape or a divorce or a sexual abuse of some kind or physical abuse in their childhood. And they say, you know, that was a long time ago. And you know, you asked me about it, so I told you. But and and I began wondering what is going on with these people that they are so detached. Frankly, as a therapist, you have to listen pretty carefully to people like this because if you just take your reaction to them from what they look like and what they appear to be, you really kind of think, well, nothing much is wrong. But underneath, there is this terrific self-loathing and shame and self-criticism and pressure to be to be very productive and I've developed this whole syndrome that these people present with that is uh, or live their life by that um, is very very rigid and non non-giving you know when we talk about perfectionism and people who present well you know, I'm sure I was one of those people at one time, you know, that sort of looked and operated in the world. And my guess is you were as well. And then when you start start to tease apart and see a little bit of cracks at the edges, you realize, well, yeah, it might look like it's all together, but oh my, there's some you know, percolation yeah. under there. <laughs> yes. Well, in fact, there can be intense percolation and to use your term. And there's some wonderful researchers in Canada Gordon Fleck and oh, his other name is escaping me right now. But anyway, they are finding these connections and coral strong correlations between suicide and perfectionism. So we're really looking at a situation that's very, very troubling. I've had all kinds of parents contact me. I've had a, some reporters contact me about s teenage suicides or college suicides that the person 
looked wonderful. They had lots of friends. They were very successful. They were, they looked happy. And then all of a sudden they're jumped off a bridge or off a building or hung themselves or something. So it is a huge problem that I think we need to address very, very uh, carefully because, because we're going to miss these people. These people are going to fall through the therapeutic crack, so to speak, of the system because it's, because they don't look ill. They don't look sick. They don't look lonely, but they are ill and they are sick and they are lonely. Well, loneliness is an epidemic. I mean, I think if we were to talk about a social or cultural ill in today's climate, there are lots of lonely people out there that are suffering. They're isolating. I mean, you can speak more to this probably than I. Do you know Jean? Uh, I'm going to mispronounce her last name. It's Twingy. Or it's yes, t- yes. Her, her work is fascinating. And um, Igen, I, I, right? I, I she's been on I, the show before. I think it's Igen is her new book. Yes, yes. And I've read that book and her her research. You know, she's a sociologist for those of you listening who don't know her. And she has studied generational change for for really she's studied several different generations and she sees the most change in this generation. And it's not a change in a positive direction. Well, she paints it that. This younger generation is not killing them each other more, but they are killing themselves more. They are their drinking has gone down, but drug use has gone up. I mean, different directions it's going, but it's not in a great direction. Well, and if we look at the, I think it was the CDC just came out with a report recently that our life expectancy, the average life expectancy of an American, has gone down by one month as a result of 70,000 overdoses, overdose deaths and suicides in our country last year. Wow. Well, yeah. Suicide rates in all age groups except for 65 and over are, have gone, are going dramatically up. If I'm remembering correctly, it's, it's men in their 40s, women in their 50s, and teenagers are actually increasing at the most alarming rate. So, Margaret, let me ask you a couple of questions about how you suggest we start these conversations with our children, with our partners, with our coworkers, with our colleagues, with our friends. How do you out yourself, have the conversation? You know what? I'm not doing as well as I would like. I need help. That takes courage. Yes, it does. You know, one of my beefs, Lisa, is that Whenever someone kills themselves, like Kate Spade and when Anthony Bourdain killed themselves, here came on all the morning talk shows the same question about what depression looks like. And it's going to look like this, this, this and this and how parents can help their children. And they said, oh, you can look for these signs. And I thought to myself, I want to throw a pillow at the TV screen because I wanted to say, no, what parents need to do is talk about their own vulnerabilities to their children. They need to talk about when they're sad or when they get scared, they're not going to be good at something or when or some history they have of a problem. You model it. You teach that it's okay to have failures and weaknesses and be disappointed in yourself 
or you can be angry, but you, you, you talk about it with your children and therefore they learn that they can do that. That's really where it starts. You don't watch for signs of depression. I mean, of course you watch for signs of depression, but classic depression, but you also need to model this kind of openness with your kids. I think you make a really good point because of my history, my family history, their dad's history. We talk about mental health in our house and we have very open conversations and my kids and their friends know that they can come here and just be and talk. And I think it is that telling one story, right? You know, that we need, we need to unburden. We need to share what's going on. You know, when I, again, started the blog back in 2012, and I can remember the first post I did on my own panic disorder. And I was, there's still this part of me that thinks, okay, if I put this out on social media, will my phone stop ringing? No one will come to see me as a psychologist because, well, you know, she needs to heal herself. That's exactly the opposite of what has happened. People have written to me both for the podcast and for my blog post and said, thank you for being real. It's ridiculous to think that just because you're a therapist, you don't have issues, you know, and and we, we like that you're that you're talking about them. And so. If anything, it has been very rewarding and warming to hear that from people. And, you know, I've so often, Lisa, I have a patient say, you know, none of my friends know I'm coming to therapy. And one of my basic response is, well, pick one and tell them. Yeah, Yeah. share. Tell them what's going on. And by far, people come back and say, you won't believe what I found out that, you know, she's on an antidepressant or her husband is or her children are or they're going to therapy or or she struggled with this as well. People just don't talk about it. It's as if it is something that we're just supposed to take for granted that everybody's mentally healthy and doing great. Well, no. Uh, in fact, you know, maybe some days we are, and but some days we're definitely not. And of course, if you have an actual mental illness, then you are trying to manage something that can be very difficult to do. Talking about your own panic disorder, you know, being able to speak your truth about that, I would imagine as a doctor, as a clinician who is taking care of people, took a lot of courage. Well, thank you. Yeah, I don't know the quantity of it. I don't know if you know about the organization. This is my brave. Jennifer Marshall uh, is doing great work with that organization. And it's people coming and on stage and either reading a poem they've written or talking about their story or a song. But somehow they reveal their, their mental illness. And we had one here in northwest Arkansas, and I decided to to perform, to do it. And it was amazing to me because I thought it would be a breeze. I thought, oh, well, now you've been writing about this for so many years. It won't be anything. Well, in my particular piece, I also was talking about how you would know if you saw me that I was anxious, that I'm holding on to the chair or I'm, you know, I'm doing different things. You know, I sit down suddenly. And I tell you, Lisa, it was amazing and humbling to realize that when I got up in front of an audience of people to say those things, you know, I had panic. No, (laughs) come on. (laughs) uh, Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Because it was, it was just, I was, I was being even more vulnerable. Yeah, um, I wasn't even just talking about having panic. I was saying, and this is how you know I have it. And so 
that drive to hide, that need to hide can be so prevalent. And yet the more of us that come forward, I mean, I, you know, I have people as patients who are wonderful, wonderful people. And um, when they tell me that no one knows about whatever they're struggling with, I just, I understand that it's a privacy issue and respect that at the same time as a culture, the more we talk about it, the more we will understand and then help each other make good decisions about our mental health. Amen to that. Let's jump off for the break now. To learn more, please visit www.drmargaretrutherford.com. On Facebook, she's at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And the book we're talking about today, which will be released in 2019, is Perfectly Hidden Depression. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Before we take that break, I want to mention a way I keep my own brain happy. Like so many of you, I try to learn something new every day. And that's why I'm a big fan of Blinkist, a new time-efficient app that serves my curious mind and a hunger for lifelong learning. In this fast-paced world, it's a challenge to juggle life's responsibilities and personal growth. This is where Blinkist comes in to help me nurture my well-being with consciously crafted brain food. Blinkist is the only app that distills the best takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down to short and sweet, readable and audible summaries of 15 minutes or less. Blinkist is made for busy folks like you and me who like to read and want to stay informed but just don't have enough hours in the day to do it all. Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books in a day while you're on the go. More than 8 million people are using the massive and growing Blinkist library of self-help, business, health, history books, and more. I like Blinkist because in 15 minutes or less, I can expand my intelligence on any subject and boost my happiness through greater knowledge. I use Blinkist when I'm driving in the car. It helps make my travel time more relaxed and enjoyable. I've recently listened to Start With The Why by Simon Sinek and How To Stop Worrying and Start Living by Dale Carnegie, and I highly recommend them both to you. And right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash happiness and start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash happiness. Remember, that's Blinkist.com slash happiness. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life 
is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode if you know someone who is battling with depression, because today we are demystifying the condition, sharing some surprising symptoms and unexpected treatments. My guest today is Dr. Margaret Rutherford. So Margaret, before the break, you were sharing a little bit about your own story and getting up at This Is My Brain, an event that took place in your neck of the woods in Arkansas and talking about how you would know if you were having a panic attack and the panic that you experienced sharing that. Oh, yeah. Tears came to my eyes and the audience was was wonderful. They got kind of quiet because they could see how emotional I was. And and then they, you know, like, I'm getting emotional thinking about it. They called from the audience, come on, you can do it. It was just so sweet. And I, you know, I did, I was fine. And the other people on the panel were also, I mean, I was very moved by many of much of what they had to say. There was a guy that has bipolar disorder there and he put his family through hell and and they, (laughs) and they were, and they were there and he turned to them in a very vulnerable, open, wonderful way and just said, I know I did. And I'm so sorry. You know, it was way before he could accept himself what was going on with him. So, you know, we, we have to remember that that it is hard to love someone sometimes with mental illness just because we want them to be better. And unfortunately, you know, much of that journey is an individual one. So we can support as much as we can, but we sometimes watch our loved ones become pretty self-destructive and then we're there to help pick them up and dust them off. But they have to want to do that. Let's talk about perfectionism as being highly overrated as well as uh, normalcy. Yes. Well, perfectionism, again, it's not a bad thing in and of itself. The kind of perfectionism I'm talking about in the book is one where it's taken way beyond the pale. It is not only, these are the kind of people that when they put something on their plate, nothing else comes off. And so their plates get more crowded and more crowded and more crowded. The syndrome that I've come up with had has 10 different characteristics. And again, a syndrome is sort of like codependency. It's a, it's a group of behaviors that tend to stick together. And you find them, when you find one, you tend to find them all, or at least most of them. Things like, these are people who count their blessings um, and without realizing that it's okay to talk about some of the more negative things that are part of our daily experience. And they take a lot of responsibility. They have lots of friends, really sincere friends. They're very sincere givers. But at the same time, no one really knows them. They don't talk about themselves. So that kind of perfectionism is can be very, very dangerous. Well, it's, you know, weaponizing uh, con- control on a, on a certain level, right? If I know everything about you and I'm always there for you, but never have to reveal anything about myself, that keeps me armored up, walled off and safe in my mind. Oh, yeah. People who have come to see me because of my writing or talking about it. And I don't mean to sound dramatic, but one girl, when she left therapy, looked at me and she said, my mom and I have talked 
And we know that I wouldn't be alive if I hadn't come into therapy. She was about to marry somebody that she it was abuse, abusive to her, but it looked like the perfect relationship. And so she was extremely unhappy in it. And the only way she could think of escaping was suicide. So wow. when she began unveiling and taking down that wall that you mentioned brick by brick by brick, then she could see that there were other options for her, you know, a lot of other options. Wait, let's just stop for one second and just like tell anybody that it may be listening to this. Suicide is not really a good option. Right. I mean, we don't really, we we never really say that in the course of our conversation when we're having interviews and talks like this, you know, it's not a good idea. Well, you know, you can't take it back. You will deny the impact on people that you love. I believe I was talking to Michael Yapko, who's an international expert on depression. He's, I was talking to him about the book and I've been to several of his seminars and he was kind enough to talk with me. And he reminded me that the three reasons why people commit suicide mostly are hopelessness, impulsivity, and they feel like, or they feel like the, you know, their family would be better off without them. Those kinds of distortions in your own mind and feeling that, you know, uh, that hopeless. I know I've, I talk with people all the time who feel suicidal and, and yet they look back on it and think, oh my gosh, I could feel better. I just didn't think I could at that moment. The, the other thing I think it's important to talk about is is having the idea. There are times in many people's lives, myself included, where I thought, you know, I'm just I'm I'm tired. You know, like, it's mm-hmm. like if, if it were over, it would be all right. It's not mm-hmm. that I'm looking to do it. Right. Well, no. And so a lot of people have that, Lisa, for sure. I think probably if some of the people that have been that have struggled with suicidal suicidality with me were here to talk about it with us, they would remind us very quickly that depression can get so dark and so despairing that it does seem like a choice that makes sense because that is just so hard to bear. I I understand that and respect that and honor that. That is not what you and I are saying, I think. It's no, just no, no. It's just simply to say, you know, it is especially the part where you think your family or whomever would be better off without you. That is not how. That's an irrational belief. That's right. That's right. And when we are in those states, we're not in our rational mind, that we're chemically altered. You know, even if it's our own chemistry working against us, right? But we're not in our right mind. Right, right. That's right. It's so important to look at all these different things that can lead to someone seriously considering that choice. And I'm always feeling, I always feel much better when I ask somebody, well, how does it feel for you to have that thought? And they look at me and they say, it scares me. That's the answer I want to hear, that it scares them. Because when they start not getting scared about it, then that's when I worry. Yeah. And the thought is just the thought. I mean, I think here's the other thing when when we're talking about mental illness and mental health, right? The self-care and and optimal lifestyle required to manage mental health. I mean, I know for myself that that is the secret sauce. You know, am I sleeping well? Am I exercising well? Am I eating well? Am Am I having good connected social engagement? Those are part of the mental health plan. Of course. In fact, I remember learning in graduate school, the question you always ask someone when they say that they're struggling with suicide suicidal thoughts, you say, you know, who's your support system? Yeah. And if they look at you and say no one, 
then that's a problem because our support systems, people who love us and who we love, will keep us fighting and will keep us engaged with life. And that's hard to do when you're when you're significantly depressed. Yeah. In managing depression, and this is hard for many people who are doing so now that may be listening to this, the doing, the action becomes so challenging. And that's when it's really helpful to have an accountability partner, you know, whether it is a friend. Therapy, of course, is essential, but maybe you're not there yet. Maybe getting yourself to a therapist is an absolute monumental task. Yes. And of course, what do you have to overcome? You have to overcome uh, trust issues or fear or uh, just feeling like you're lame because you, you know, you, you quote unquote need a therapist. And yet a model of therapy that I love to talk about, Lisa, is that when you really think about uh, what we admire in leaders, we want our leaders to be people who turn to other people for their advice. Yeah. We have a president with a cabinet. We have, you know, we, we well, have. Wait a sec. <laughs> I couldn't help myself. Sorry. <laughs> well, we hope that leaders are asking the advice of people that have different opinions than they do or have a different perspective on life. So or on that particular subject, whatever it is. And so I like to think about therapy as almost like a consultant, a therapist acting as a consultant. It just so happens that the topic happens to be the self. You know, your thinking, your emotions, your experience, any trauma in your life, that's the topic. But, you know, after after years of experience or just schooling or whatever and education interest, then therapists are people who are who spend hours of their weeks uh, engaged in talking about that and trying to help people make the changes they want to make. I love what you just said about the, being a consultant. You know, that our mental health professionals, our therapists, our consultants who are there to guide us to self-improvement. Yeah, well, that's certainly my model. I mean, I know that there are plenty of other theories and, and certainly the relationship itself is very important. Often, sometimes a therapist is the only person you've ever met that would keep a confidence or not make fun of you if you cried or whatever. So, you know, sometimes that relationship and is is vital because it's it can be one where you think you either grow for the first time or you regrow a sense of trust. Ah, repair and reparenting. Yeah, that's right. right? That's right. <laughs> so I'm not saying that the relationship, but because making, you know, calling it a consultant almost sounds a little objective. But at the same time, I think, especially for men, I think that that way of talking about it and describing it would be more palatable for a lot of men who tend to, um, I did a study three or four years ago now, and just seeing about the gender differences and why women might not go to therapy and why men might not go, and definitely men, and this is no big whoop, I mean, it was no big surprise for men, it was their stoicism that they should be able to, you know, solve the problems themselves, and women's was more the fear of what other people would think. We are out of time. Oh my gosh, this snuck up. This snuck up on me, which means we'll have to hang out more together. That's all. Okay, that's that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, actually. <laughs> I, and I hope our listeners feel the same way about what you shared, because the more we talk about it, the more we normalize the conversation about mental health, and the more we're able to 
you know, express that V word, right? That vulnerability with one another. The more we see we're not separated and isolated, that we're, we're, we're all in this human process together. You bet. The book we've been talking about today, which will have a fall 2019 release, is Perfectly Hidden Depression. My guest today has been Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And to learn more about Dr. Rutherford's work, please visit drmargaretrutherford.com. And on Facebook, you can find her at Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a guarantee. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we are demystifying depression. We are talking about surprising symptoms and unexpected treatments. And I am delighted to welcome back my next guest, who is a friend of the show, Johan Hari. Johan Hari is the New York Times bestselling author of Chasing the Scream, which is being adapted into a feature film. He was twice named Newspaper Journalist of the Year by Amnesty International UK. He has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and others, and he is a regular panelist on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Johan, thanks for joining us again. Oh, it's lovely to be back with you, Lisa. Thanks so much. Let's talk about Lost Connections and what prompted you to write the book. There were these two kind of mysteries that were hanging over me. I'm 39 years old. Every single year I've been alive almost, depression and anxiety have increased in the United States and Britain. And I wanted to understand why, what, what's happening? Why does this seem to be going up every year that passes? And I wanted to understand that partly for a very personal reason, just the kind of second, which led me to the second mystery. When I was a teenager, I had gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it or regulate it. I, I didn't understand it. I felt very ashamed of it. And my doctor told me a story. This is the late 90s. Lots of people were being told this story. Lots of your listeners will be recognize this story. He said, oh, we know why, the, why you feel this way. This is a, scientists have discovered it. There's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains. Some people are naturally lacking it. You're clearly one of them. And the only solution you need is for me to give you these drugs that will boost your serotonin levels and you'll feel fine. And I felt a tremendous amount of relief to be told this story. And then when I started taking the drugs, I experienced an even greater amount of relief. But within a couple of months, this sense of pain started to bleed back through. So I went back to my doctor. He said, oh, clearly I didn't give you a high enough dose. 
I took a higher dose. Again, I felt some real relief. Again, the feeling of pain started to bleed back through. And I was in this cycle until eventually I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which I was still depressed and I'd experienced a lot of side effects. And I wanted to understand what's going on here. So for my book, Lost Connections, I ended up going on a very long journey. I went over 40,000 miles around the world from San Francisco to Sao Paulo to Sydney, to, to really sit with the leading experts in the world on what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. And people with very different perspectives from an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have very low levels of depression, to a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would affect people's mental health, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people psychedelic drugs to see if that would help with their depression. <laughs> and I think we can talk about that if you want. Oh, do tell. <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> I think that, the main, I learned so many things, but I think the, the core of it is I realized until I was, until I went to my doctor when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning I was just weak and it is a man up and insert whatever stigmatizing cliche you could think of there. And, and then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. What I learned on this journey from the leading experts in the world is actually neither of those stories is quite right. There are real biological factors like your genes that can make you more sensitive to this problem. But actually, the core reasons why we're depressed and anxious are largely not in our heads. They're mostly in the way we're living. I learned there are nine causes of depression and anxiety for which there is scientific evidence. Only two of them are biological. The rest are factors in the way we're living. And once I learned that, it led me on a path to discover very different ways out of depression and anxiety, ones that are really effective. And let's talk a little bit about that, because I find this is quite hopeful, that if we nail the uh, biological component, you know, increasing serotonin, whether it's done pharmacologically or nutritionally, then what? One of the ways that helped me to think about this in a different way is I interviewed a South African psychiatrist called Derek Summerfield, who happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced there. And the Cambodian doctors didn't know what these drugs were. They'd never heard of them. So he explained and they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who worked in the rice fields. And one day he stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. And they gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's very physically painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. I'm also imagining it was pretty traumatic because these are the fields where he'd been blown up. Uh, he started to cry all the time, didn't want to get out of bed, classic depression. They said to Derek, we gave him an antidepressant. He said, what was it? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. It wasn't some irrational misfiring. It was a response to things that had happened. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to be going into these fields where it was traumatizing him so much. They bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his depression went away. He was fine. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that it's a chemical imbalance in your brain only, then of course that sounds like a bad joke, right? I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. 
and you need love and support, practical support to get those needs met. Now, that's a very different way of thinking about depression and anxiety. And it took me quite a long time to absorb that. But it then led me to think, well, what's the cow for the things, the nine factors that are making us depressed and anxious? And I can, I can talk a bit about that if you want. Yeah, I would love to talk about that. But I want to just ask you a question about the unmet hmm. needs. Because in my work, because I do work on the dark side most days, and I'm constantly sitting with people who really are challenged by addiction, trauma, depression, and anxiety are certainly underlying issues in most of those cases. And this notion that when the brain is telling us that we are not satisfied and we are sad, there's usually a good reason for it, which ties into what you're about to share. I think that's totally right. I remember, as you can tell from my weird Downton Abbey voice, I'm British and I spent a lot of my time in the US. And I remember when I first came to the US, being really shocked by the existence of indigestion pills like Pepto-Bismol because they don't exist in Europe, right? And I remember the first time someone offered me them, I remember saying, but wait, your indigestion isn't a malfunction, right? <laughs> indigestion is a signal from your body that you're eating too fast. You need to slow down. If You, you don't want to get rid of that signal because actually... That signal's telling you something really important. If you get rid of that signal, you'll make yourself sick. You'll eat too much. You'll put on too much weight. It's actually a necessary, it's a painful signal. It's a horrible signal, but it's a necessary signal. And, you know, you don't want to take that analogy too far because depression is a million times worse than indigestion. But, but I do think the fact that so many people are distressed and anxious, I think there's really strong evidence. It's telling us we've built a way of living that's not compatible in certain crucial ways with our underlying human nature. I'll give you a very specific example because that can sound a bit fancy and weird in the abstract, right? We are the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? When they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more Americans who have no one they can turn to in a crisis than any other option. And Human beings, the reason why we're alive, Lisa, one of the key reasons we're alive is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing, right? We weren't bigger than the animals we took down, but we were much better at cooperating. Every instinct human beings have is to band together as a tribe. You know, one of the men who taught me most, one of the people who taught me most about this is a wonderful man called Professor John Cassiopo, who sadly died this week. He was at the University of Chicago. He was the world's expert on loneliness. And he showed that being acutely lonely is as stressful for human beings as being punched in the face by a stranger, right? Because if you think about the circumstances where we evolved, you know, if you were separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason, right? You were about to die. You were in terrible danger. Those are the instincts we have. Now, so Professor Cassiopo proved two things. Firstly, that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. Secondly, that loneliness has massively increased. Now that helps to explain one of the nine reasons why we have this rising depression and anxiety crisis. And I learned that there was a, a wonderful person, a wonderful doctor, one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, who'd actually discovered a way to deal with that cause of depression and anxiety. But really what you're saying is the disconnection from those components of our lives that we know breed happiness is the underlying cause of depression and anxiety. You know, it's things what, like, me, me, yeah, meaning, you know, you, you can run through the list, right? Meaningful work, trauma, security. We don't think about that, but it's, but it's true. When yeah. we're, our, our safety is undermined, we can become depressed and anxious, and it makes perfect sense. Exactly, that it's not, this is the worst thing for me 
about telling people that depression is just a chemical imbalance in your brain. What it does is it tells you your pain has no meaning, it's irrational, and that disconnects you and it disconnects the wider society from understanding why we feel this way. And if we don't understand why, if we don't have an accurate map of the territory, we can't find our way through the territory, we can't find our way out of the territory. Let's take that break now. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with Johan Hari about his book, Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. To learn more, please visit thelostconnections.com, on Twitter at Johan Hari 101, and on Facebook, that page is johanhari.page. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about a difficult subject, but one that needs to be outed, and that is depression. I'm talking with Johan Hari about surprising symptoms and unexpected treatments. We began to talk about some of the underlying causes of depression and anxiety, and I would love to continue the list yeah. and maybe recap yeah. the list in total. Well, but essentially, because I just just to finish the thing we were talking about before, because we talked about how disconnection from the people around you, from loneliness, is a major driver of depression and anxiety. And one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is a doctor in London who discovered a solution to that problem, a really promising way out. So, Dr. Sam Everington was a doctor, is a doctor in a very general practitioner in a very poor part of East London, actually, where I lived for a long time, though sadly he was never my doctor. And Sam was really uncomfortable. Like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants. He thinks they have some value. But he could see that his patients were coming to him with loads of problems, one of which was loneliness, and that these drugs were giving some of them a bit of relief, but were not solving the underlying problem. And so he decided to try an experiment. One day, a woman called Lisa Cunningham came to see him. Lisa had been shut away in her home with terrible depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to her, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you the drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. So there was an area behind the doctor's surgery. It was just kind of like scrubland, right? 
And he said to Lisa, what I'd like you to do is to turn up a couple of times a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people. I'll turn out and support you. And I'd like you to turn this into something beautiful. The first meeting, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But several things happened in this group. Firstly, they had something to talk about that wasn't how terrible they felt, right? They decided (laughs) to learn gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the season. These were inner city people. They'd never known anything about the natural world. There's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a very powerful antidepressant. They also did this thing that, that people do when they get together in groups, when they form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. For example, I mean, this is an extreme example. One of the people in the group was sleeping on the bus, a public bus, right? And the other people in the group were horrified. They started pressuring the local authority to get this guy housed. They succeeded. It was the first time a lot of them had done something else for years. It made them feel great. The way Lisa put it to me, as the flowers began to bloom, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. And there was a study in Norway of a very similar program that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for kind of obvious reason, it was dealing with two of the key reasons why they were depressed in the first place, their disconnection from the natural world and their disconnection from other people. And everywhere I went in the world, I write about seven solutions to depression and anxiety in my book, Lost Connections. And everywhere I went in the world, I saw that the most effective solutions were the ones that deal with why we feel so terrible in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned about being disconnected from the natural world. One of the things that I've come to realize in doing this work for so many years is that when you don't go outside and see the sun in the course of a day, or don't get the opportunity to just sit in nature for a few minutes and hear the wind and hear the birds and the bees, et cetera, et cetera, we tend to feel depressed. And I'm, I'm thinking of the Japanese study that was done a few years back talking about it was eight minutes a day in nature. Yeah, there's a really interesting, so there's lots of different theories. So there's very good evidence that being in the natural world reduces depression and anxiety. There's different theories about why, and they're probably all true to some degree. So one theory is partly what depression is, is being trapped in your own story, right? You're trapped in your own thoughts. (laughs) And what most people experience in the natural world is a feeling of awe. You get a sense that the world is big and I am small, which actually gives you a tremendous relief when you're depressed. And this also seems to be one of the reasons why psychedelics have quite a strong antidepressant effect, right? Because what psychedelics do is they switch off your ego, drugs like LSD, psilocybin, they switch off your sense of ego, and they give you an intense sense of being connected to the world around you. There's other theories about why nature has a strong antidepressant effect. So one of them is put forward by Dr. Isabel Benke, who I interviewed for the book, is animals go crazy in zoos, right, when they're deprived of their habitat. Parrots will rip out their feathers. Horses will start obsessively swaying. Elephants will grind their tusks down to nothing, to bloody stumps when actually in the wild their tusks are a source of great pride. Animals go crazy when they're deprived of their habitat. And there's this argument that we have been deprived of our habitat, the habitat we evolved to live in. And for similar reasons, we're, we're going crazy. This is one of the nine reasons I write about in Lost Connections, why our depression and anxiety epidemic is risen. And there's lots of interesting early evidence about this. So for example, the state prison in Michigan, just by coincidence, happens to have one part looks out over beautiful green fields and the other part looks out over just concrete. And a big study, it's just random where you end up in the prison. And a big study found that people who looked out over the beautiful greenery developed 23% fewer mental health problems than the people who looked out over concrete. But one of the things that's happened is because we live in a society where the only things 
that get researched and promoted are the things that people can make money out of, we've ended up with this distorted picture. Think about Lisa, who I was talking about, who gets prescribed to take part in that gardening program, which had such a powerful effect on her. There's a $0 billion industry in getting her to go gardening, and there's a $10 billion industry in drugging her. Now, that doesn't mean that the drugs have no value. They do have some value for some people. But you can see how we've ended up with this very distorted picture. We've been told this such a heavily biological story about depression and anxiety. It's not that there aren't biological factors in depression and anxiety. There absolutely are. And I write about them in detail in Lost Connections. But that's dominated pretty much the whole story for what most of us are told. Most of us are told, you know, there's very broad agreement among scientists that there are three kinds of cause of depression and anxiety. There are biological causes, which are obviously things like your genes. There are psychological causes, which are what you work with so brilliantly, you know, how we think about ourselves. And then there are social causes, which are how we interact with our environment. They're all real. But what we've had up to now is we've been told basically a biological story with a very small side dish of a psychological story and nothing (laughs) about the social story, right? And actually, what the World Health Organization, the leading medical body in the world says, is mental health is primarily a social indicator. It has social causes and any social as well as individual solutions. That's not some wacky fringe body. These are the leading doctors in the world. I mean, the UN's leading doctor said last year that we need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about power imbalances if we're going to deal with depression and anxiety. Indeed. Let's talk for a moment about what your journey looked like at the end of your research, because you came into the project having a personal vested interest as well as a, an intellectual interest. In yeah, depression. I'll talk to you about the hardest thing I learned. I'm trying to make myself talk about this in interviews. I went and interviewed an incredible man called Dr. Vincent Felitti who discovered something extraordinary about depression. I will tell you the story about how he discovered it because, and it's going to sound for a moment like I'm talking about a completely different thing, but just bear with me because it led to this breakthrough and I don't think you can understand it if you don't understand the story. In the mid-1980s, Dr. Felitti was asked by Kaiser Permanente, one of the big medical providers in California, to do blue skies research into a big problem they had. There were massively rising costs associated with obesity and nothing they were doing was working. So they said to him, look, just give him a load of money and said, figure out what's going on. So he started to work with people who 350 extremely obese people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And one day he had this kind of what seems like a kind of dumb idea, right? He just thought, what would happen if they literally just stopped eating and we just gave them nutrients, right? Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body until they were a normal weight? And it turns out it worked, right? They did, in fact, lose loads of weight. And then one day, one of the stars of the program, a woman I'm going to call Susan to protect her medical confidentiality, cracked and fled to KFC and starts just gorging, right? And Vincent called her in and said, well, what happened, Susan? It turned out that day, something had happened to her that never happened to her when she was extremely overweight. A man had hit on her and it really freaked her out. And then Vincent said, well, tell me about when you started to put on weight. It was when she was 11. He said, why was it when you were 11 and not when you were, say, 10 or 13? She said, well, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. What Vincent discovered is 55% of the people in the program had started to put on weight in the wake of being sexually abused. And as Susan put it to him, overweight is overlooked and that's what I needed to be, right? So actually, this thing that seemed irrational, obesity, was in fact serving a perfectly rational function, right? It was protecting them. Anyway, this led to a breakthrough in depression because Vincent then started, everyone who came to Kaiser Permanente for the next year for medical care of any kind was given a questionnaire. It asked about 10 bad things that can happen to you as a kid, neglect, abuse. And then it said, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Things like obesity, 
And then it asked about depression and suicide. What they found was extraordinary. For every category of trauma you experienced, you were radically more likely to become depressed and anxious. And in fact, if you had six of those categories, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide as an adult, right? And what Dr. Felidi found next was that if you gave people safe spaces where they could talk about the shame of that experience, it led to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety that was difficult for me to think about because I'd experienced quite extreme childhood trauma when I was younger. But again, it was one of the things I kept learning from my book, Lost Connections. If you understand the problem differently, you find solutions that actually work. It's a hard journey to go on, but it's a really important one, I think. We don't have a lot of time, and I wanted to just touch upon the relationship between the growth in social media and the increase in depression. Yeah, I, went, I think this is huge. I wanted to understand this. I went to the first ever internet rehab center in Washington state. And I think the core of what's happening there is the internet is like a parody of the things we've lost. We've lost our networks of friends. So it offers us Facebook friends. We've lost status. It offers us status updates, right? But it's not what we've lost. It's a parody of the thing we lost. The relationship between social media and social life is like the relationship between pornography and sex, right? I'm not against porn, but if your whole sex life consisted of porn, you would be going around constantly frustrated because your deeper needs would not be met. In a similar way, if too much of your social life is taken up with social media and interacting through screens, which is not how we evolved, you're going to feel frustrated because it doesn't meet your deeper needs. You and I could be talking now, you know, you think about this conversation we're having, if we were sitting here looking at each other and talking face to face, we would feel we were seeing each other much more clearly and more profoundly. Human beings didn't evolve for screen-based interaction. I'm not against screen-based interaction. It has some value, but we need community. It hasn't replaced the things we've lost. It's a parody of the things we've lost. Well, we need eye contact. We need touch. We need love. I mean, underlying all of this, right, is the disconnection from that secret sauce, ultimately. Absolutely. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yeah. Oh my goodness, we're out of time once again. So hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I'll see you soon in air quotes. <laughs> I, would, I would love that, Lisa. And I should just say, can my publishers tell me off? If anyone wants any more, inf- if I don't say this, if, I, if anyone wants any more information about the book, they can find out what Elton John, Russell Brand, Ariana Huffington, Hillary Clinton, Tucker Carlson, and loads of other people have said about the book at www.thelostconnections.com. They can also find take a quiz to see how much they know about the causes of depression and anxiety. They can listen to audio of loads of the amazing people that we've been talking about and lots of other good things. You're a dream to have on as a guest. <laughs> you can do your own plug. Uh, but to connect with you on Twitter, folks can reach out at johanhari101 and on Facebook, johanhari.page. Thank you again, Johan, for hanging out with me. Uh, what a pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. I really appreciate it. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Dr. Margaret Rutherford and Johan Hari, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of Consciously Curated Talk Radio from the Heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.